So what's the one thing you want to have us take away? Well, that isolation is really the greatest threat to freedom and how tyrants always use it to control people, no matter what level of tyranny it is. I mean, it can be a gaslighting partner. It could be a cult leader. It could be, Great. you know, a, a world-class dictator. Yeah, we're going to cover that a lot. Yeah. Uh, but th that's the main thing, but also for people to understand that, um, you know, people say, oh, you know, it's so daunting. What can I do? Well, the thing to remember is that even one voice uh, makes a huge difference because they're always trying to shut down every single solitary voice. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Sarah and I, my wife, and Sarah's here Hi. to my side, uh, uh, helping out today at the beginning. Uh, we were at a book party for Naomi Wolf, who's, uh, as most of you know, is, has had an awakening, awakening about uh, tyranny and freedom in America and has come over to our side and uh, really uh, doing a good job with her messaging. And I, we were standing there, and all of a sudden I saw one of my favorite people, a person, a woman who's been a guest on the show a couple times in the past, Stella Marabito. And she's a, as you, most of you know, she's a longtime writer for The Federalist and has written some marvelous essays. And I think last time, Stella, you were on, we were talking about the Supreme Court nominations and how they were um, personally attacking the, uh, the justices and, and what those issues were there. And yes, the, the, the nature of tyranny and tyrants, yes. So we're going to continue that theme today. And so I asked Stella, so what, uh, what, what, what are you doing now? And she said, well, I've written a book. And she handed me a book called The Weaponization of Loneliness. And I thought, wow, that's a very interesting title. And the subtitle is How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. And I, I took the book, and Stella was nice enough to uh, inscribe a pretty nice inscription in the front of it. And I showed it to Sarah. And Sarah? I picked it up, opened it, just started reading a few pages. And I said to Bill, this is terrific. And then we had a little, we had a, we were, you know, I wanted to read it and he wanted to read it. And we only had one copy. Oh, but I couldn't stop care. reading it. And then last week, you can tell this story. Yeah, we're friends with Matt and Mercy Schlapp. I'm on Matt's CPAC board. And, and they were out at our place in, in Rappahannock and uh, sit, sitting on the coffee, coffee table in, in prime, prime pole position was the weaponization of loneliness. The next thing I know, uh, Mercy Schlapp is totally unavailable for conversation because she's spending the whole time reading the book. <laughs> and she said, this is terrific. I've got to get a copy for, of this for my daughter, who's a, um, a sophomore at Notre Dame. Then she said, I need 10 copies. Yeah, so she's off for 10 copies. Now, you know something about the publishing business and magazines. You work, you get a background in... Uh... Um, I did the first illustrated cover for The New Republic, and then one of the things that they used to have just type on the cover. And what they used to do was call me up on a Friday and say, if you can come up with an idea, they'd give, send me the cover story. If you can come up with an idea and should give us a sketch on the, tomorrow, 
you can do the cover and have the artwork ready on Monday. So that's, and then I moved to New York. And but you got to tell the story about you're the only one okay. who read the, read the paper. Yeah, the, there's three people at a magazine. We've got to get Stella in here quickly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> there's three people at a magazine who read every article. The editor, the copy editor, and the art director. So I read every single article in Harper's the whole time. I read every article in the New Republic. And after a while, I said, these people are crazy. And these ideas are ruining my life. And that's when I went from being a liberal to whatever it is I whatever am now. Whatever we call ourselves now. Yeah. We're not exactly sure. Stella, what should we call ourselves now? Pro-thought. Pro-thought. Oh, I, 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 I love that. I love that. I've been looking for a label. Uh, about a year or two ago that there are really only two political camps, pro-thought and anti-thought. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And that ties into my thesis as well. Well, that's what your book is filled with ideas like that. And it's so conversational. You were just saying it didn't get edited enough. And I said, I, maybe that's why it's so easy to read, because it's your voice. So why, why do you write the book? Well, I felt that these dynamics all around us, especially that you know, deal with isolation and the use of isolation as a political weapon, is something that people generally you know, maybe they understand that instinctively when they say, oh, I don't want to say anything because I'm afraid, you know, they're going to call me a bad name. But I really felt, I wrote the book because I felt that Americans, especially youth, if they can manage it, <laughs> needed to understand how these dynamics work, how they work on us, how they work within us, and how self-censorship in particular gives so much oxygen to destructive agendas. Uh, and, you know, when we self-censor, we're really affecting public opinion. And I'll get into that a little bit more. But the point, uh, the main point and the main reason I wrote it was to help figure out these dynamics that help us understand what it is that we're watching in terms of all the insanity out there. And, um, and you know, I believe that... Uh, our self-censorship, which is always due to that fear of ostracism, uh, uh, as well as that hardwired need for connection. Human beings are just created to connect with other people. And when that's threatened, we you know, withdraw and we mm. shut up about what we believe or even lie about what we believe in order to avoid that. So I just felt that people need a much better understanding of how these dynamics work in order to build counter strategies. So Stella, you wrote in the book, I thought it was powerful, that Cato did a uh, poll and they said that 62% of people um, said they had political views they were too fearful to express. That's right. That poll was taken in 2020. And I think there have been polls since then that even, you know, that that show an even greater number. But what was also interesting is that uh, Liberals were the the ones who are least likely to be fearful of expressing their political beliefs, and and that's because when you know when you have like a media monopoly that's pushing one narrative, it, it's very it's not risky to go against that narrative, and uh, and and that's right. Uh, that's why you have that you know a lot more liberals who are not fearful of expressing their Well, they're, they're in a cocoon of approval. Exactly. I mean, if you look at all the major media, um, they're, they're, they're lockstep, so they're feeling very, they don't feel isolated. That's right. Well, you know, it's interesting you should say that, Bill, because I think 
that they experience a different kind of isolation. Uh, you know, as you said, like being stuck in that cocoon. But they don't seem to feel the same threat that somebody who goes against the narrative would feel. You know, I asked after reading the book, uh, and I got through almost all of it. It's terrific. Uh, I talked to some of my liberal friends, and I brought up this topic of loneliness without getting into the weaponization mm -hmm. part. And they all said, yeah, I mean, oh, loneliness yeah. is a big problem. And that, you know, they're citing things like social media. They're citing things like the, well, they would never admit that the lockdowns uh, had anything to do with it. But uh, so the, it, 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 it's pervasive in America, maybe pervasive in the West. Everybody feels it. Uh, but when it comes to the political aspects that, you know, I, you know, I get into in the book, you know, how, how this is used uh, as a political weapon, that's where, you know, a, a lot of them who are stuck in that cocoon will, uh, you know, step back. But, um, but that's, you know, that's uh, really interesting you bring well, that up. Well, Sarah, you mentioned, you, you had a point to make. I know well, you, you were talking about young people, and I thought Mercedes has five daughters, and the oldest is a sophomore in college, and they're all close coming into college age, and she wanted the book for all her daughters to read. And I suppose it's because she wants them to be able to express. Well, and particularly in universities now. I mean, you talk about liberals who aren't afraid to speak. Let's talk about the typical university professor. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And having to go into that kind of an environment where, you know, the, the slogan now, what is it? Free speech is hate speech? I mean, <laughs> how, how crazy is that? I mean, how anti-thought, right? How... Uh, how against the entire notion of what a university is supposed to be, you know, the exploration of ideas. And, uh, you know, if you know what happened at uh, Stanford a couple months ago, where uh, the federal judge, um, what was his name, Kyle Duncan, went to speak for the Federalist Society at, at their invitation and was shouted down by a mob that just can't stand to, to hear anything that goes against their narrative. Well, dangerous. So uh, I, Sarah, were you? Well, I thought you were raving about this book and saying, who knew what Robespierre did and what Cromwell yeah, did? I wanted to get, uh, so, yeah, that, thanks for bringing that up because the thing, that, the, the, there's a part of the book where you say this is not a new phenomenon. This has been characterized by lots of regimes, totalitarian re regimes in the past. And you start with, uh, and I didn't quite recognize this is that, what it was, Oliver Cromwell, and the revolution in uh, mm -hmm. in England, and then you. What about tell us about Oliver Cromwell? Okay, the reason I brought up Cromwell. So I have a I have a um, you know a whole chapter on the history of radical utopian revolutions and how they use they all seem to use what I call the machinery of loneliness to push their agendas forward, and uh, the machinery of loneliness today. Uh, I call it identity politics. It's three, three uh, you know, parts, components. Identity politics to um, define us and, uh, and erase our individuality, you know, that, to, to classify us according to, you know, certain labels and demographics. Okay, so identity politics to divide us. Political correctness to induce self-censorship, to induce that fear of being ridiculed. Uh, or rejected, 
And then it's all enforced by mob agitation. And of course, we know during the French Revolution, all these other revolutions, Mao's struggle sessions, Red Guards, there's <clears> always <throat> mob uh, involvement. Mobs can take different forms, as I say. But Cromwell, why Cromwell? Why start with Cromwell? Um, I started with him and that whole 17th century Puritan revolution in England because um, I thought it was very interesting that uh, you had a, not just this major figure who, you know, brought England under the thumb of this whole, you know, his theology and all of that, but that this whole army of, you know, his army uh, of, um, Puritans. Oh. What's that? Puritans. Yeah. Yeah. Calvin, they, Calvin and, is and, Puritan. And how, how puritanical thought, purity of thought, was enforced in very much the same way that you see it enforced today by the, you know, the, whatever you want to call it, the woke left or whatever. You are required. That's why there is so much of this like, oh, I, you know, I'm, you know I, I don't know if that's the right word. Oh, oh, you know, so much of this self-apology and, and, and confession and all of that that you'll see in that particular political uh, woke left, uh, you know, what's taking over our society. And so that, that's why I brought that up. Um, I'm here with Stella Maravito and my bride, Sarah. I'm so enthusiastic about the book, which is why I'm here. So we were, she's here. To, so are we, are we good? Yes, yes. Right, she I wanted to make sure she told you exactly what she thought, and everybody should buy this book. I am so, <laughs> I, I just am so grateful, yeah. Sarah. And thank you. Just in talking to you, particularly young people, anybody going off to college yeah. should have this book. So well, And thank it's on you. Kindle, too. Yeah. I have both paper and Kindle. It's great. Okay. Thank you, my Thank dear. Thank you. Fun. Uh, so, Stella, the thing that strikes me about what you've done is you've distilled the essence of five or six of the great, I won't, great, the most powerful, the most uh, egregious revolutions in history. You took Oliver Cromwell in England, Robespierre in France, um, Lenin in, uh, in, in Russia, and then we have Hitler, of course, in Germany, mm -hmm. and then you fast, and then we did also Mao mm -hmm. uh, in China with, with the Cultural Revolution. And the thing that was really compelling to me is how similar they all are. I mean, they all have, they're all true believers. There's a small cadre of people that are the, mm -hmm. uh, that are the, that are the, the inner group. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, some people say you could take over a country with a couple thousand people. Well, they did. Mm -hmm. And so you had this army of people and you now believe that that same sort of uh, zealotry and totalitarian thought and, and cult-like thinking affects a lot of what we now call wokeness or mm -hmm. used to be political correctness. I guess if we're pro-thought, you'd call them anti-thought. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it's, uh, it, it, there are similarities, and, but the difference, you say, today, though, is today's phenomena is technical, mm -hmm. technological. It's global. This mm -hmm. is not just one one country, and it's also hydra-headed. Whereas yes. before, with these other revolutions, you had a Lenin or a Mao or a, mm -hmm. a Hitler or a Robespierre mm -hmm. or a Cromwell. Now we don't seem to have any singular villain that's mm -hmm. uh, that that we can um, we can we can focus on. And to me, that's disconcerting because yes. I see people acting in concert, and yeah, I wonder who's right. who's that man behind the curtain. That's right. 
Yeah, there, there are, the goals are always the same. I mean, whether it's the globalist push that we see today, the, the so-called Great Reset push, um, or uh, all of these other utopian revolutions in the past, uh, the goals are always the same. And they are all focused on global domination. It's just that today there's a greater means for that because the world is so much more interconnected uh, than it would have been during, you know, the French Revolution or the Bolsheviks or, you know, and so on. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, the role of technology itself is very, can be very alienating. Uh, you know, originally the idea was, oh, we're going to all be interconnected, you know, through the internet and, oh, well, you know, it'll, how great it'll all be. But as we see it becoming more and more information, becoming more and more under centralized control, that, that is very disconcerting. And then just the, the, the virtual reality itself is alienating to people. I mean, it, you know, it affects us both on, a, you know, in an outward way in terms of how it affects our world and commerce and everything else, but it also has a, a, a huge effect internally on people, especially youth, you know, just being slaves to these devices. And, and then, of course, um, as you pointed out, you know, it, it, there's not one particular dictator we can um, point to. Uh, it's all hydra-headed. We've got the corporate world, the big tech, big media. And you can take over, you mentioned like maybe a thousand people could take over, as long as you've got a media monopoly. If you have control over information, you know, you can more easily uh, make a, you know, make a, a run for Total control. Well, as, you, as you wrote this, though, did you begin to think who was behind? Is there somebody coordinating what seems to be this group think among what we've called the globalist uh, great reset elite, the, mm -hmm. the big tech companies, social media, um, traditional media, et cetera? I mean, is there is there somebody? <laughs> I think it's like it's. A, because you've been Bill, thinking about this a lot. I... Yeah. And, and don't you think it's kind of like they all want a piece of this pie? You know, if, it, you know, it's, if, they, if there is a, um, you know, a global great reset where everybody goes to digital currency and everybody is tracked and everybody, you know, that the, there are a few who kind of call the shots uh, and everybody else is some kind of a drone, right, in, in this. I, I don't know what the end product is, but it's not good, you know, when people are cut off from one another, which is what happens with censorship and, and control of information, don't you think? I, I mean, do. Well, let's talk about your central idea, the, the, the loneliness piece. I mean, let's mm -hmm. talk about how people end up so isolated. I mean, you mentioned it, but let's drill into it. Okay, well, this is, you know, it's really interesting today uh, because, well, I could go off in a thousand different directions on this. Pick one. But first of all, okay, first of all, loneliness. We know from all the research that uh, it has a very destructive effect on human beings to be isolated. Uh, I begin my book, a prologue, with a story about this feral child, you know, who had been isolated for 12 years of her life and, and how once you're cut off, you, you become, uh, you know, sensory deprived, you become basically feral. You can't 
you can't communicate. She was never able to communicate. And that's, you know, that was a stark example of what happens in severe isolation. And I think that's one reason why most people are fearful of being isolated and rejected, cast out. Um, you know, that herd, what we can call the herd instinct, is so powerful. And I believe it's because we were created for connection with other people and created for communion with God and created, uh, you know, to, to, to interact with others. And the flip side of that is that when, if that's threatened, uh, we, we're very fearful. It's a primal terror, actually, of being ostracized or socially re rejected. And tyrants have always, whether instinctively or consciously, tyrants have always been able to exploit that vulnerability within us. And I, we just, I wrote the book because I think that we need to become a, a lot more aware of how these dynamics work. And loneliness, of course, uh, isolation leads not only to the mental health uh, epidemic, pandemic, or whatever you want to call it that we have today with suicide rates and depression and drug dependence and overdoses and all of that, um, it also leads to physical health issues. I mean, the stress of isolation uh, can cause premature death. It can cause, uh, you know, the early onset of Alzheimer's, uh, you stroke, heart disease, so many things caused by the stress of isolation. So that would also add to the at least subconscious fear that human beings have of that, as well as uh, the, um, the use of it by tyrants to control, uh, you know, to control society, to socially engineer. What about the lockdowns? What about oh. what we've seen with the pandemic? I mean, this yeah. accelerated it. Oh, yeah. There were lots of headlines about a ep uh, loneliness epidemic well before the COVID right. era. But COVID definitely fast-tracked it all because it, this was so, this is what is so unbelievable about what happened is that we were, you know, our isolation was enforced in a way that it had never happened before in this country. I mean, it was it, it should have been very foreign to any American. Uh, yeah, I know youth kind of went with a flow and all of that, but it was unbelievably brutal in ways that we should we should appreciate more in retrospect and, and never allow to happen again. Sadistic, actually. I mean, when you think about how they were separating people from their loved ones uh, in the hour of greatest need and actually hastening the deaths of their loved ones, neither of whom might have had COVID, but they were not allowed in the hospital. It was, uh, you know, just really brutal. And, um, you know, you mentioning that to me is really interesting because just in the past couple of days, uh, I don't know if you're aware or if your listeners are aware, but there was an announcement by the Surgeon General of the United States, um, Vivek uh, Murthy, I, yeah, is his name, who said that, oh, we're going to build an infrastructure now to take care of this loneliness epidemic. And it's going to have six pillars, uh, all of which, in my view, is, and this is the first time I'm, I'm really discussing this, in my view, uh, this is about really delving the government, really having an excuse or giving itself an excuse 
to delve into the private sphere of life. I mean, they're going to be sending bureaucrats to meddle. What are the what are the six pillars? Oh man, you know it has to do. I don't with, need all six. But with, what, what's the gist? yeah? The idea is is basically to get institutions, you know, um, uh, connected with this idea that people might be lonely and to you know go into the communities and make sure that people are not isolated. And I, you know, I don't remember the specifics of each pillar. I read through it. It was. Uh, a big CNN story. Well, you know, there's a theme here. You know, I spent a lot of time in the financial sphere and money. And, you know, with the central banks now, the idea is to get a central bank digital currency, which you give us information about all of our transactions right. centralized. I mean, technically, you can find that if a government goes looking very hard for it. But this would make it just simply as looking at a ledger. And then we had, I had Chris Icavella on of American Securities last week. And they now want to centralize, the, the SEC wants to centralize all your security holdings in one database. And so they've got a snapshot of all your assets. So they're, they're delving into your financial life, banking, develop, delving into your investment life um, with, through the securities firms. And now we've got, which agency is it? The Surgeon General? The Surgeon General was the one who made the big announcement. And yes. they have six pillars. And so we ought to be, a, we ought to raise... Because we want to get to solutions. One of the things that we've got to do is raise the alarm that this is happening. Yes. I mean, the biggest the biggest thing we can do is to get together and say, this is happening, and we've got to stand together to do something about it. Exactly, because it's really all about tracking, surveillance, and bureaucratic meddling in the private sphere of life. Okay. That's really what it amounts to. And, of course, we're seeing the, 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 uh, the medical state. Oh, the medical deep state, security state, is doing right. the same thing with our with our physical health and I suppose our emotional health. So now we've got the six pillars, right? One of which had to do with medical, the, the institution of medicine, and and making them more aware of you know the dangers of isolation and loneliness. Which of course, I mean, it, it's crazy when you consider that you're not even allowed as a therapist to say cer certain things. Uh, you know, you got Big Brother right there in the therapist office now. I mean, so somehow this is, you know, we're from the government and we're here to help is really what it amounts to. Uh, this is Bill Walton. This is the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Stella Morabito, who's written a terrific book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, and we're talking about how the, 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 the instruments through which this is happening is through federal agencies who are now beginning to want to delve into our... Uh, private lives to uh, to solve our uh, loneliness problem. That's what they say. Gee, I can't wait. To, uh, oh, they'll show up at your doorstep. Hey, your neighbors say that you they haven't seen you. Uh, you know, yeah. Well, there are all sorts of, you've mentioned a thousand ways to go in this. You mentioned something that I find particularly chilling. You call it the so-called snitch society. Yeah. And, uh, you know, increasingly you get, you know, schools are beginning to tell certain certain kids that you ought to tell us the authorities about the behavior of other kids that uh, in the case of the, I think the uh, the uh, pandemic was mm -hmm. you know, they weren't wearing a mask or they hadn't gotten a vaccine or that sort of thing there's a there's a there's a compliance culture they're they're enlisting deputies individual mm -hmm. citizens in the in the uh, um, in the uh, you know in, in the state's project 
Oh, yeah. No, we've seen this through all these totalitarian societies, the snitch culture, especially during Mao's Cultural Revolution and his Red Guard. Uh, all it took was, a you know, an accusation to, to get someone uh, in trouble or, you know, pushing them into what's called a struggle session. It's yeah, and, and what you mentioned about kids in school, it, it's um, really disconcerting that uh, they were, you know, they'd be encouraged not only to snitch on their peers, but also on their families. And this is all part of what's called the social and emotional learning curriculum that's being baked into all of the, you know, all the schools. What's in the social and emotional learning curriculum? Well, they claim that, uh, you know, and it's run by this organization called CASEL, C-A-S-E-L, the Collaborative for Academic, they just kind of throw that in there, social and emotional learning. Uh, and it, it's been pushed into Common Core uh, for a long time, for decades, really, but now it's uh, really taking off. And what we have with the Surgeon General's announcement is basically social and emotional learning in a nutshell for all of society, not just kids in school. The idea is, oh, well, you know, kids don't get a chance to learn um, enough about how to treat others, how to relate to others, how to be responsible, how to be respectful. And of course, the government has its own definitions for what all of that means. Uh, you know, I mean, they've got their own agendas. The government, when I say the government, I mean really the woke left, which kind of runs the show now, uh, has its own definitions for those words, respect, responsibility, uh, you know, kindness, and all of that. Equity. Equ oh, yeah, and that's about, you know, the, the, here's the other thing that I would say. Equity and diversity, these ideas, okay, I won't even get into the ex inclusion part at the moment, but they're mutually exclusive. I mean, the world that they're trying to build, at least for us. DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right. So diversity and equity are mutually exclusive? Yeah. I mean, you can't have, equity really means sameness. It means making us all the same and how, you know, how we think and what our perspectives are. And that's why we're cut off from, from information. That's why there's so much censorship top down or a pro, you know, the, the push for censorship is to cut us off from one another and cut us off from information. And, you know, the main source of information is other people. Don't you agree? I mean, if, you, if you're isolated from other people and all you have is the screen that you're kind of being pulled into, you're, you're not really getting the full picture of real life. Well, you have to be trained to want to, you have to be trained to recognize that that screen is giving you um, lots and lots of false information and kids are not, right. and people are not really trained to make those kind of distinctions. That, that's, and that's a problem. And that one reason I wrote this book is to help people become more aware of a lot of these different things. I couldn't do the whole thing, but, but um, th that's the main point. So the social and emotional learning curriculum, uh, you know, that where kids are supposed to be taught how to relate to one another. I mean, these are things that you should learn in the home from parents, but the school has taken on the function of family and more and more is cutting family out of the picture. But um, what we have with this loneliness uh, project that the Surgeon General just announced is um, 
a project to deliver social emotional learning to the masses as well as DEI to the masses on a very personal play, uh, level. And I think you're exactly right to say snitch culture will play into it for sure. Well, the, the thing that I, my mental model for this is my, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm of a libertarian bent and my mental model is we've got all of us living, you know, living in, in communities and people think of libertarian as rugged isolationism. It's not. It's really a commutarian kind of world where you have small communities and you've got groups you're involved with and lots of mediating institutions like the church and the local civil, civic societies and you know, used to be the Boy Scout and the Girl Scouts, so those have been captured by the yeah, uh, they have been by the woke sure. police. But you know, I think I think it's something like 1984. You had what's his name, Winston Smith, our, our our protagonist, and it was basically Winston Smith alone in his room, mm -hmm. looking at the screen with Big Brother, and Big Brother would come on every. Uh, every so often, and, and didn't they have hate exercises they'd engage in? Two minutes in? hate. Two yeah. minutes hate. But there were no intermediating institutions. He had no friends. He had mm -hmm. no church. He had no other other social connections with people. He, he didn't go bowling with, with other people. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's the agenda, though. You look at the, the schools trying to cut the family, right. out of, the parents out of the curriculum, out of decisions about their kids. It, it, if you see this as trying to get rid of all the other in intervening institutions, you just have people dependent on the state. It seems like that's the end game. You're right. You're right, Bill. I think the big well, good. prize... I feel like I, feel like I did <laughs> no. well in class because you've been studying this a lot more than <laughs> well, I have. I think I, uh... the big prize <laughs> is the private sphere of life. Okay. This is what totalitarians, total control, totalitarians have been after for centuries. And, you know, controlling our relationships, our personal relationships, regulating, that's where this loneliness infrastructure, uh, you know, to supposedly cure loneliness is leading, is the control and regulation of all personal relationships. The removal of the, pri uh, of the private sphere of life and... Um, you know, all good tyrants and totalitarians want to be able to control uh, or take track every social interaction. And I've read that in, uh, you know, in one particular book uh, about... We, we write about uh, Robespierre, who, yeah. whose, whose uh, intellectual heroes were Rousseau and Voltaire, mm -hmm. who talked about the general will. And they were there not because That's of right. their own ego, but because they were, they were the uncorrupted, enlightened interpreter of the general will. Mm -hmm. And of course, the general will was whatever they thought. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, you know, but they think they put themselves up as gods, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they can't be wrong. Yeah. And and so that's that's where we're headed, though, and and that's what I would like people to understand is that our strength as human beings really comes from these connections in the private sphere of life. And you'll see in that book, I, I do cite Václav Havel's uh, work from 1978 called The Power of the Powerless. He was the Czech uh, dissident in the 70s during, you know, when Czechoslovakia was a Soviet bloc nation. And he later, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, became president of the Czech Republic. But 
He wrote this book that was like a shot in the arm to the dissident movement in the 1970s. It was called The Power of the Powerless. And he pointed out that our power really comes from these, this sphere of life, these relationships that we have that are hidden from, at least at the time, hidden from uh, the, the tyranny that rules over us, the tyrants. And of course, today with, the, you know, with all of these tools, technological tools, uh, that is less and less hidden, you know, our private lives, especially as you mentioned, going to like a digital currency uh, where every single transaction gets tracked. Uh, but also now with this, I believe, the first foray into finally trying to control our personal lives, our, our personal relationships through this massive, uh, uh, you know, uh, in supposed intent to cure the loneliness epidemic or to get it under control. I want to, you have some great ideas for solutions to this because this is not inevitable. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. But I did want to get touched back into something we talked in, the lockdowns. Why did America comply the way it did? Well, yeah. I mean, that was really disconcerting. Exactly. Well, and, and you know, I, I, I wrote this book also to answer two basic questions. Um, why do we fall for this stuff, number one? And number two, how do they get away with it? Uh, and and so I think that what, what page are the answers on? I want. Well, <laughs> I you know, I go into my thesis about isolation and the machinery okay, of loneliness anyway. and all of that. But to answer your question about the lockdowns, I believe that they um, Americans had already been dealing with obedience to political correctness already for decades. Mm -hmm. That we were already conditioned to self-censor, so that when a therapeutic... And taking our shoes came, off at the airport helped. Oh, that's all part of the conditioning process. So we've been process. in obedience school for decades. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's right. I mean, and so we were more tuned in to listening to, of course, with the media monopoly as well, uh, them, to listening to them as some sort of voice of authority. Not all of us, of course. But many Americans just fell right in line, and uh, and then they, you know, they engaged in the snitch culture as well. I mean, you know, it, sure. people in grocery stores, if they saw someone whose mask was even just a little below the nose, were like, you know, little mask nonsense. Have you ever been in the Safeway on Connecticut yeah. Avenue in D.C.? It's a very, uh, uh, it's a very snitch. Oh <laughs> man, yeah, I don't know what you know it's what happens to yeah. people. It well, I. You know, I think I kind of have a feeling for what happens to people, but it's bad. It's very bad. But there are ways out of this. And, um, you know, my last chapter is called Throwing a, a Wrench in the Machinery of Loneliness. And, uh, you know, I think it's kind of, there are many different ways that people just on their own as a single voice can make a difference. Well, you've got a lot of interest. Your first idea there is to launch Propaganda Awareness Book Club. Well... Yes. And in fact, I'm in the process right now of doing a syllabus just based on this book, but also there are hundreds of amazing multimedia, you know, I have a multi multimedia sources uh, that deal with this theme, whether it was intentional or not, 
movies, documentaries, uh, you know, books, articles, uh, novels. There are so many. There are so many. Well, you've uh, got a terrific bibliography in the book. But yeah, this it's is, very this select. Is, this is the beginning. This is, this this is just selected. the beginning, and it doesn't include the movies. But I think if people watch certain movies together with these ideas in mind, uh, and, you know, the, the book club that I envisioned, and I have some people I'm working with on it, um, they wanted to start to begin with this book. And, you know, I don't know for however many months and however often you would meet, but just going through each chapter and getting real conversant with the whole machinery of loneliness and the weaponization of loneliness and how it works, and then moving on to all kinds of other uh, books, articles, novels, movie nights. Uh, well, you mentioned it in your book, one of the great movies on this one is Lives of Others. Oh, man, that is, is the East, amazing. Which is a movie about East Germany before... Uh, right before the fall of the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the 80s, the Stasi, and yeah, that was an incredible film, The Lives of Others. And it, 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 I guess they came out after it was revealed how many files the Stasi had. It, there were files of virtually every person in Berlin. Oh, yeah. And, and, and the Stasi guy was up in the attic listening in on the writer's conversations and his life and his, and his girlfriend or whatever... And, um, and of course, now they don't have to go up and set it up in an attic. Now we have they, iPhones. They've got, they've, they got it all. Oh, like I said, in one point uh, in the book, you know, no medieval wizard or alchemist would have ever dreamed of having such, uh, you know, such tools at his fingertips as, as uh, this cybersphere. Well, the, the, just to hammer this home, Totalitarian, you write, totalitarians depend on isolating people in order to control them through terror. And you said the dawning task begins with this question, what's the primary weakness? Speech. Exactly. Speech. Free, yep. Free the, speech. The, that is the greatest weakness of totalitarians, is when people can speak openly to one another, um, they gain knowledge. I mean, that to me is the source of knowledge is other people. Um, you know, even if you're just reading a book, uh, yeah. you know, it, that you, mm -hmm. know, you communicate ideas and perspectives and all of these things are very dangerous to totalitarians. Uh, and that's why they have always been sticklers for censorship under the guise today of protecting us from disinformation, and so on and so forth. That, that, that is uh, their number one agenda item, is to abolish the First Amendment, to abolish freedom of speech, so that yeah. and we can't... it's can... not just speech, it's assembly and all the other rights that are oh, in exactly. the First Amendment. Exactly, association. Yeah. They want yeah. to dictate relationships who yeah. you can associate with. They want to dictate what you can say, what you can think. That's why I say the two political camps today are pro-thought and anti-thought. The other idea, which I'm, I'm, I'm going to be using that one from now on. Good. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> you also mentioned building parallel policies, policies and, and institutions. How, how I th I, it does feel sometimes like we ought to go full John Galt. Mm. And, you know, he was the character in Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Shrugged, who went, right. He got tired of all this and went off to Colorado, I think, set up a separate... Uh, community so they could they could they could be free from mm -hmm. all this but i don't know quite that that's what's going to happen today but 
is that the idea behind a parallel policies or these institutions inside the, uh, you know, inside where we live in, uh, say, Virginia? Well, okay, so most of our institutions are corrupt and have been subverted. Uh, I didn't catch your last question, uh, 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 last piece of that. Well, there's, there, it, it really gets to the larger question I've got, uh, larger whatever, but the red-blue distinction. If you look at the lockdown, certain states locked down egregiously. Oh, Some yes, states, yes. People preserve their freedoms, and the difference in outcomes was stark. Right. And so there are there are places, uh, in a, it, we have a federalist system, and there are many differences among among the states in terms of how right. how locked down they are, how totalitarian right. they are, how much mm-hmm. chilling effect there is on speech. And so right. when you talk about policies, are we all going to move to Florida? Or are we, well, uh, what, what, is this a metaphysical thing? Right, right. And, and of course, one of my points about parallel institutions to kind of replace the corrupt institutions uh, you know, that we can, you know, there, there are examples of them. Um, you know, you've got, uh, what, what's the name of the one that, uh, that does Boy Scouts now? Um, the Girl Scouts, it's like American Heritage Girls. Yeah, there's, you know, there's two, are there are a couple organizations yeah. that have sprung up. And, right. And, and so it was like Hillsdale College would be parallel to all the corrupt universities or, uh, you know, independent journalists. There are different ways of, going about this, but go ahead. Well, I just want to define corrupt. By corrupt, you're simply saying these people are chilling other ways of thinking and, and free expression. And, that, well, and it's a lock. What do you mean by corrupt? I mean subverted so that the institution no longer serves its, ori- its, its mission, its original purpose. For example, the university as an institution right. uh, has been subverted. It is no longer yeah. a place uh, where we explore ideas. Uh, it's no longer a place of freedom of speech. Um, and, and like medicine, again, especially psychiatry, uh, so much of that has been subverted uh, so that you've got Big Brother right there in the psychiatrist's office along with you and the psychiatrist or the therapist or whatever. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the federal government has already, uh, you know, dictated what people can say uh, in, you know, yeah, an example, what, what Criti- a, critical we, race theory has thoroughly permeated regular medicine, and they're now saying mm-hmm. you're not allowed to make distinguish- distinctions between among races. And right. It turns and, out that there's certain illnesses that only one race gets, that, the other well, doesn't. So if you've got somebody and you're not supposed to admit what race they are, you've just tossed most of the uh, right. diagnosis out, out the window. Right. Well, and there's so many. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's so many other examples, like, for example, in music for auditions for Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, They don't want it to be uh, a blind audition anymore. They want to be able to see the race or the sex Uh, or the gender identity uh, or whatever of the the musician. This is is the one I know a lot about. I was president of symphony here. And blind Uh audition is where... The musician sits up, is up on the stage playing their instrument, and there's literally a blind mm-hmm. between the musician and the uh, and the people determining whether this musician is really good or not. So you can't see mm-hmm. sex, race, color. Mm-hmm. You just listen to the music. Yeah, but now they that, want to get rid of that, right. that blind. They so want... the purpose of the institution has been subverted. Yeah. And and so 
When I talk about parallel institutions to take over from the corrupt or subverted institutions, yeah. I mean other, you know, you know, we need to start building those. But it begins really even just one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Jacques Yalel, who wrote Propaganda, the uh, Formation of Men's Attitudes, in which he says that propaganda ends where simple dialogue begins. And that, of course, is what every tyrant is afraid of. They don't want people talking to one another without their permission, talking to one another and having real conversations and exchanging ideas. And, um, and so uh, parallel institutions, parallel policies, they're always mm -hmm. going to have a, um, you know, they're, they're always having, um, they want to cut them off at the knees whenever they find them or wherever they find them. One of my, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the arts and you have great recommendations here. I want to get two before we got to get out of here with work. Okay. Um, one of them is supporting the revival of beauty in the public yes. square. Yes. And, oh, yeah, I don't know. Do you get on Twitter much, Bill? I do. Okay. So are you familiar with a, um, a Twitter account called Culture Critic? No, should I? Oh, culture man. Critic. Okay, and and he'll he'll show what a, you know a beautiful you know building was replaced with, and it'll have side by side pictures like maybe the old Penn Station and then today's uh, you know Madison Square Garden. I mean, it, it's it you know they they tore apart this incredible train station, in New York. Um, Penn Station. Penn Station. Yeah. And replaced it with, you know, I don't know, just this block, or, you know, this the Madison yeah, Square You know, brutalist concrete. Yeah, right. Ugly, yeah, and you go down in there. And there's yeah. no nothing aesthetic about it. And, of course, Sir Roger, the late Sir Roger Scruton, this was a big issue of his, as I know, I'm sure you know. And, and with beauty comes truth, as Keats said. You know, it's it's um, it kind of opens our eyes to order in the world as opposed to chaos. Uh, you know what? What anyway? You'll want to go to that Twitter site because he has some of the most beautiful examples. Well, I've always book. liked the phrase "beauty is truth," and truth is beauty. Although I never really totally understood it. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, John Keats. But it has a wonderful resonation. Yeah. That was Kate. That was Kate Keats. Yeah. Yeah. The Ode on a Grecian Urn. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, the last one I is is uh, reviving comedy oh. is the key to reviving freedom. Oh, it's one of the big keys because, as you, I'm sure, know, in the Soviet Union or all of these totalitarian communist nations and uh, you know, comedy was basically illegal. One of my favorite dystopian novels is called We by Yevgeny Zemyatin, a disillusioned Bolshevik. It was written in the 20s, and George Orwell wrote a review of that novel for the London Tribune in 1946, and it inspired him to write 1984. It's titled We. And um, is it one of the big, points big, in big there. Biography? Yes. Okay, good. Yes. And, and one of the points that the narrator, make, narrator makes is that jokes are basically illegal. And one of the dissidents, there is still a dissident or two in this uh, dystopia. And, uh, and she cracks jokes and she does illegal things like smoke and crack jokes. And anyway, it, 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 you know, it, why? Why is comedy such a threat to 
tyranny because it it exposes us to truth in ways that um, it, it gives us a sense of relief in terms of, yeah, I never thought of it that way. Or, um, you know, yeah, isn't that funny? Isn't that true? And everybody just kind of almost as a relief just starts laughing because of, you know, when there's good comedy and good satire, you can see the, the lies exposed, the evil of the system exposed. And that's why in the Soviet Union, of course, it was illegal. Not a lot of good stand-up comics in Chinese communist China or Chinese in Chinese communist China. Do they actually no. have, try to have stand-up Can you think com- of those? I mean, how many great stand-ups were Nazis? Uh, <laughs> now yeah. this explains late night TV and why it's just absolutely oh, they're unfunny. Just mouthpiece because, for aren't yeah, they? Yeah. Like for the you know the woke left. I mean it's it's <laughs> it's like cringe, cringy stuff. So the big reason we've got to make this happen is we've got to get late night TV being funny again. That, that's right. Make comedy funny again. Right. <laughs> make comedy real again. Well, we've, we've, we, you, I, you know, we could continue for a couple hours, but I don't have a couple hours, neither do you. So give us, uh, give us your, your takeaway here. I mean, we've talked about some of the solutions. What should we be doing? Well, we should um, not be fearful of speaking the truth uh, when, when we feel it, because more people probably agree with you than you realize. Most people don't really believe all that stuff, all that woke stuff. I mean, except for those who have just kind of been, you know, totally uh, drenched in it. But most people don't really believe this stuff. And if you're having a one-on-one conversation with someone and you just allow yourself to say what you feel about an issue, that goes a long way towards opening up uh, civil society again. Freedom of speech, people need to understand that free speech is use it or lose it, number one. And number two, it's the only way we can have real relationships. I mean, if we can't speak openly to people, we can't get to know them, right? Can, if you can't speak openly to someone, Bill, can you get to know them? Well, my, I just as a footnote to that, I think the quickest way to not waste time on people who are maybe wildly dif- divergent from you is to say right. things like, you know, I voted for Donald Trump, I worked for Donald Trump, and I plan to vote for him again. Now, certain places I'm in in greater in the greater D.C. area, they'll leave the room. Yeah, <laughs> or worse, or worse. Yeah. <laughs> so. One thing about telling the truth is you sort of can figure out very quickly whether you've got a kindred spirit or not. That's and right. I think it's a it's a very useful way to uh, to to make life simpler. Yeah. Well, but that, but it, it, yeah, it is really important because if we're worried about isolation, and that I believe drives so much of human interaction, yeah. is that fear of isolation and that need to connect, the, uh, you know, the, the converse, need to connect. It drives, I believe, just about everything in human affairs. What we say, what we don't say, whom we associate with, um, whom we might shun. I mean, it, it drives everything. And, and so I think it's just really important to become aware of these dynamics and uh, aware enough to build these counter strategies and to build the courage to go forward, it, it'll take leaders, first of all, 
to um, bring, you know, to, to, to like you. Well, and like you and like get the word Tucker out. Carlson and, yeah. and so many people yeah. who uh, aren't fearful of speaking the truth and understand. I mean, that's one of the things Tucker Carlson said in his speech that was so powerful uh, that Friday night at the Heritage. Yeah, event. I was there. Yeah. It, he said, um, you know, telling the truth makes you stronger and lying only makes you weaker and more terrified. And I think we need to, you know, hold those words to our hearts and understand. I mean, that, that's basically biblical, really. Uh, and the truth really will set you free. Um, you know, you might get beat up in the, in the, in the, in the interim, but it, it's really the only way forward. And it's really the only way to avoid loneliness, to avoid isolation. Because again, if you can't speak freely, you end up isolated. And that's the whole purpose of censorship, to isolate you. Stella, thank you. Um, this has been the Bill Walton Show, and I've been talking with the wonderful, astute, and courageous Stella Maravito, <laughs> who's written a book, The Weaponization of Loneliness. Highly recommended. Uh, and anyway, as always, thanks for uh, joining us on the show. As you know, we can you can find us on all the major platforms, Rumble, YouTube, and all the major audio platforms as well. We're on Substack and also on CPAC now on Monday nights. And uh, as always, send us your ideas about shows, topics, people you'd like to have us uh, uh, dive into things with. And uh, we take a lot of comments through our website, thebillwaltonshow.com, and on Substack. Um, so thanks for joining and hope you found this interesting. And, and in this case, I'm really going to plug it again. Buy the book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, Stella Maravito. So thanks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.